Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Inspired Churches podcast. We're a church in Union City that loves Jesus. Our hope is that you'd be inspired to grow in God's Word as reflected in loving Christ more and more every day. So wherever you are, be a light. To find more teachings or donate to the ministry, visit us at inspiredchurches.com. Good morning, Inspire family. Um, so good to see you guys. So glad to be here. It's quite a privilege uh, to stand here this morning and uh, have the opportunity to bring today's word. So I'm excited. I hope you are as, as well. In a second, I'll share my story a little bit more about myself. Uh, but before we get there, I want to take some time and quickly review the foundation of this sermon series. Um, don't worry about going, opening your Bibles just yet. We'll have it up on the screen for you to follow along. But the, the text that has been the basis of this sermon series is in Galatians chapter 5. And uh, verse 16 reads this. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And so a little further down in verse 22, we're told that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And so every week, we have been intentionally repetitive and uh, reminding ourselves with these three main points. And it's this. Number one, the spirit, excuse me, the spirit's fruit validates the credibility of our witness. Number two, the spirit's fruit validates the genuineness of our faith. And number three, it is in conflict with the works of our flesh. And so here's the thing about repetition. If you're anything like me, it takes me an extremely long time to hold on to anything. So as we continue to read out the fruit of the Spirit one by one, and we continue to remember these three main points, it's only so that we would keep it, hold it, and that it would be fruitful in our lives. So now if you've spent any amount of time considering these three points, there's one obvious takeaway, and it's this. It's what the Spirit produces isn't like anything in this world. And, and what I mean is this. <clears throat> the fruit of the Spirit in a person's life creates a lifestyle that goes against the culture. Would you agree? It is distinguishably different. And it's even questioned by those who witness it whether or not it's real. So a life that is filled with the fruit of the Spirit stems from a Christian's trust, not only in Jesus, but it's also produced by the Holy Spirit. See, it's, it's divine. It's supernatural. Professor J.V. Fesco says it this way, the fruit of the Spirit are the buds of new creation. It's a gift that cannot be purchased and it's something that cannot be produced by the strongest of wills. Right. Right. It, is a, it is the evidence of a life that is devo devoted to Jesus. And over the course of a lifetime, 
It presents a person who has been transformed into the image of God. The new buds that were created at the acceptance of salvation are now in full bloom, producing supernatural fruit. But here's the challenging question for us. With so many self-professing Christians surrounding us today, us included, why does it seem that most of us have trouble with just keeping up with what we would consider the absolute minimum of courtesy? Let alone producing a lifestyle that professes, I am a follower of Jesus and I am full of the Spirit's fruit. Now I'm talking about the obvious stuff, the please and thank yous, the holding the door open for someone, giving your seat up for someone who clearly needs it on the BART train, but you want to take a nap. The walking with your head down so you can ignore the person close to you and keep minding your own business. Sharing your excess, not the leftovers, but the befores. Sharing your Netflix password. I'm playing. Wait. It's illegal. Don't share your Netflix password. And the hard one. Letting somebody merge in front of you during traffic. I get it. It's hard. I feel it too. But it's in the daily rhythms of our lives where the fruits, whether good or bad, is displayed for all the taste, the goodness of God or the bitterness of our selfishness. So as we continue to dig in today and tend to our natural gardens, what is keeping the tree of our lives from maturing and displaying the supernatural fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Well, the answer is in the question. The ability to mature as a Christian is directly tied to amounts of trust we have in God's faithfulness while we patiently endure the troubles and people in our lives. But before we go any further, let's go ahead and pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and we give you all the honor and all the glory because you are deserving of it, Father. And we thank you for this opportunity to come together as a body and to sit under your word and to receive what you have for us today, Lord. Pray that you would help me communicate your word to your people, Father. Pray for good soil in order for us to hear, receive, understand, and hold on to what you have for us this morning. I pray that this series would continue to be a catalyst that sparks new growth of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, as you all know by now, my name is Andy and I'm one of the elders here at Inspire. And uh, when it comes to talk about this portion of the fruit of the Spirit, which is patience, to be quite honest, it's emotional. It's an emotional and very personal conversation for me. 
And so a little background, as most of you may know, back in 2018, the day before Thanksgiving, I was diagnosed with an uh, incurable form of cancer, and it's called uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And so on, not only being diagnosed, but on that day, I also find out that I am also stage four, which, which is the, the highest level you can be, and what essentially mean is that it has spread throughout my entire body. And so in that moment, I instantly knew the road ahead would be rough and potentially even cut shorter than I expected it to be. And since that day, I have experienced things on a level I have never, ever felt in my life since cancer has entered it. Terrible pains from the cancer itself to the treatments that are, were supposed to cure it. Loneliness as I lay alone in countless hospital beds and surgery rooms and testing machines. There is nothing more lonely than sitting, laying in a surgery room under the bright lights with nothing but your thoughts and a surgery team that ignores you because they're getting ready to cut into you. Worriness from the intense pain that the painkillers could not control. The constant brain fog and body aches during the chemotherapy treatment, the never-ending appointments and the realization that cancer was for the rest of my life. Anxieties from knowing what pain I was about to feel every time I had to enter the building, from every biopsy to injection to test drain to radiation to chemotherapy, waiting for the test results as if it was going to be a surprise on what it was going to say, waiting for the health insurance to improve the medical procedures, wondering how to stay strong for my family, wondering if I was going to get to see my kids grow up, wondering if God was going to answer this prayer. Forget any other prayer that I might have had in that moment. It was this prayer that I needed answered. Fears. Fears from the thought of my kids growing up without me and me not being able to disciple them into adulthood. Wondering if any pain or discomfort meant the cancer was back. Anger. Because there is no cure. Anger of not, from not being able to do normal physical activities for two years because of the treatments and the recovery, and the cancer itself. Frustrations with the changes of my body, the results from all those early morning sacrificial workouts, gone. The daily feeling of just feeling healthiest, gone. And not being able to fit into my favorite clothes, <laughs> gone. Also frustrated with the never-ending flow of expensive medical bills right, right. that just seemed to keep coming. And lastly, 
sadness from having to accept this is now my new reality. So as you can tell, as Phil was planning and preparing for this sermon series, it only made sense to give the topic of patience to the cancer guy. (laughs) And, And to be fair, it's true. I get it. There were a lot of jokes. I have a lot to share about this portion of my life. And a little bit of it is sprinkled in today's sermon, but ultimately my desire for us this morning is that I would point us to Jesus as our perfect example of patience. So I'll I'll make one last comment about myself um, before we move on, just in case you're wondering, even if you're not, I'm doing okay. Um, Overall, I'm doing well. Physically, I'm okay. Emotionally, I'm good. Um, And the treatments are still successful in pushing back the cancer um, as flare-ups happen. Thank you. But here, here, the most important thing, in God's providence, he has used cancer in my life, in the lives of my family, um, to show his faithfulness. And to mature me in ways I would have never considered. So with that being said, let's jump in. So the Greek word, makrothema, can be translated into the following. As we know it, patience, long-suffering, forbearance, long anger. Waiting sufficient time before expressing anger. Divinely regulated patience. And lastly, long-tempered. And just a quick heads up for you as I continue through today's sermon, I'm going to flip-flop between patience and and long-suffering. Now that we know they mean the same thing, but when you say it in different contexts, it just really, you know, hits you different. So this word, this word patience, it describes the action of experienced suffering while withholding anger. It's the ability to take hardship without hitting back. It's the decision not to react resentfully towards God or others for the suffering you have had to deal with and didn't deserve. It's the act of extending mercy far longer than you need to instead of instantly sinning with your thoughts, your actions, your words. It's to respond in love when hate is warranted. It's withholding when harshness is expected. If a short-tempered person has no restraint or regard for their wrath, then a long-tempered person is slow to anger and slow to action. This level of suffering may seem radical and unattainable, maybe even a little ridiculous. It's definitely not what's promoted in today's culture. See, this long-suffering doesn't give you the dirty look when someone is irritating you. Although your lips may be silent, 
your eyes tell a story of what you are thinking, and it is not good. This long-suffering doesn't lash out when you have to repeat yourself multiple times to your kid, to your significant other, even worse, a stranger. This long-suffering doesn't flip the middle finger or yell out the other car just because they got into your way. This long-suffering doesn't, this doesn't return fire with fire or rage for rage. This long-suffering does not allow retaliation or revenge. And according to the Apostle Paul, is required of us Christians. It's also difficult to accomplish on our own. To be quite honest, it's impossible. And it requires the Holy Spirit in order for us to extend it to others. Now, it may seem that the fruit of, the, fruit of patience is only for others to enjoy and something we have to endure and, and struggle with while everybody benefits from it. But it plays an important role in the life of a Christian. Minister Stanley Gale says this, Patience is not merely a social grace. It is a driving for us, driving force for us growing in the character of the vine. Patience in the life of the Christian is not only worked out in our interactions with others. It's also exercised as we wait for God's timetable when it comes to the unfolding of our lives, our troubles, our wants, and our needs. The patience in waiting for God's timing is the proclamation that Jesus is not only your Savior, but that he's also your Lord. Like when a single young adult lowers his or her standards in dating because they are tired of waiting and want it now, but only to later regret the decision. In our long suffering, we are imitating the life of Jesus. We wait for God's justice to destroy evil once and for all. In long suffering, we wait for the breakthrough with that one thing that burdens our shoulders and makes us walk with our head hung low in defeat. In our long suffering, we wait for the reconciled relationship that, con- that constantly tears at our hearts and brings, our eye- brings tears to our eyes. In our long suffering, we wait for the cure of cancer and the agony and the pain that it causes. In our long suffering, we wait for the prodigal son or daughter so the broken family can be restored. In our long suffering, we wait on the prayers that only God can answer. And in our long suffering, we trust that he is sovereign over it all. When the Bible mentions the idea of waiting and patience and perseverance, it's often in connection with trusting in God to intervene on our behalf according to his plan for our lives. See, it's, 
It's resisting the temptation to disobey by taking matters into our own hands. So as we look to see how this shapes our lives, we look to none other than Jesus as our chief example. We move to the scriptures to see how Jesus demonstrated long-suffering in his life, death, and even after his resurrection. So today, as a family, I want us to observe three things. His patience with friends, his patience with enemies, and lastly, his patience through us. Number one, his patience with friends. So in order to get a glimpse of how Jesus extends patience to his friends, we're going to take a look at one of his closest friends, who was also his disciple. His name was Peter. Good old Peter. Peter was in Jesus' inner circle. And over the course of three years, Peter witnessed miracle after miracle, prophecies fulfilled, and the perfect display of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. On this night following the Last Supper, Jesus is betrayed by Judas and arrested. Jesus is taken to the high priest's house where Peter follows a safe distance away, watching to see how things would unfold. Luke chapter 22 captures it this way. In verse 55, they lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together. And Peter sat among them. When a servant saw him sitting in the light and looked closely at him, she said, this man was with him too. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him. After a little while, someone else saw him and said, you're one of them too. Man, I am not, Peter said. About an hour later, another kept insisting, this man was certainly with him since he's also a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you are talking about. Immediately, when he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. Then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So Peter remembered the word of the Lord how he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Now, earlier in the day, Jesus warns an overconfident Peter that Peter will deny Jesus and that he wouldn't be true to his word, that he would be willing to die for Jesus' sake. So as you can imagine at this moment when Peter, who loves Jesus deeply, realizes he's denied the Lord, not once, not twice, but three times. Following this moment, he is filled with the also familiar feelings of shame, regret, and sadness to the point of running away and weeping bitterly. Again, imagine what negative feelings Jesus must have had to have reject in that moment. Jesus, at one of his lowest moments up to that point, arrested, being dragged through the mob, physically assaulted, verbally assaulted, and alone. Only to have one of his closest friends abandon him 
and then Jesus witnessed it. What a painful, heartbreaking image. Now a time later, following Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus finds Peter back at his old profession, fishing off the shores of the Sea of Tiberias. They, re they reunite on the shore. And after having breakfast together, uh, they have this conversation that John 21 captures for us. Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. When he asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time. Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. In this moment, in this very moment where Jesus extends mercy instead of condemnation. See, Jesus didn't reject Peter. He didn't scold him. He didn't disown him. He didn't belittle him. He didn't shame him. He didn't even curse him. Jesus makes a way for a now humbled Peter to be brought back into relationship. See, out of patient love, Jesus restores Peter by asking if Peter loved him the same number of times that, that uh, Peter denied Jesus. So for those who love him, Jesus patiently and graciously leads them back to redemption. So here's the big takeaway. Supernatural patience extends mercy instead of rejection. When it comes to the patience, when it comes to patience, it feels like I failed um, with those closest to me. Yeah. And it makes sense, right? Those are the ones who have the most contact time with me, the ones that I spend the majority of my life with. So they would catch the effects of my failures. You know, and, and when I think about them, I cringe. I cringe at my failures. And I've failed enough times to notice that I am more likely to succeed at extending patience when I am intentional with my relationship with Jesus. Am I the only one that, that realizes that? So when you're, when you're close with God, you feel strong in the faith. You feel like it's hard to fall and slip up and, and do something dumb. But when you're far from God, you feel unsettled. Irritable, easily fooled. When you're walking with the spirit and the supernatural fruit is being fed and growing and your self-awareness is high, but you go a couple of days without any real praying, except for those taqueria burritos, <laughs> just living in your flesh, Short-tempered with every excuse on how you're too busy to spend time with Jesus. Your fruit shrivels. And it shows. And now that 
as a family, we're aware of this potential trap that all of us in our family can fall into sometimes. We can sense when one of us is off. We're around each other enough that we know each other really well, right? And so the first question that gets asked is, have you spent any time with Jesus lately? And so we try to do it, I promise you, as loving and compassionate as we can, because it is a hard question, right? But we ask it. And it's interesting because it's such a reminder that the strongest of wills cannot produce the supernatural fruit. Only the Holy Spirit. And so when Tiana is gracious towards me, it's posed as a loving question. But if she's in her flesh and I'm acting out at the same time, it comes out as a statement. It's no longer, it's no longer loving. It's you need Jesus. Not have you been with him. She's not here, so don't say nothing. <laughs> so from the story of Peter, it's obvious that Jesus is patient with those who love him. But how does he respond towards those who are hostile and violent towards him and his people? Point two, his patience with enemies. So we go back to the scriptures to Acts chapter 9 and verse 1 through 6 say this. Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus. So that if he found any man or woman who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Saul, a Pharisee with authority, a religious zealot, a man on a personal crusade driven by his hate of the Christian movement. His primary mission was to persecute Christian men and women by means of putting them in jails or having them killed. This man was an enemy of God in the very literal sense and from all accounts deserved the full wrath of God. But as Jesus intercepts his enemy on his way to Damascus, he does something unexpected. He meets Saul where he's at. He meets him in his sin. Saul, full of violent rage, enters the presence of Jesus. And instead of receiving God's wrath, he receives the fruit of Jesus' patience. And it's in this moment where we realize that Jesus' patience not only keeps the saved, but it saves the lost. See, Saul, still blinded from the heavenly light, is led to Damascus. And after three days of blindness, a Christian man, a Christian named Ananias restores his sight. 
Saul is then filled with the Holy Spirit and baptized. See, God's long-suffering is a response to our sin, and it's tied to his compassion to for friend and enemy alike. So in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul sums up his experience on that day on the road to Damascus this way. Paul says, I give thanks to Christ Jesus, our Lord, who strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man, but I received the mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I am the worst of them. But I received mercy for this reason so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. See, what we see with Paul is that knowing ourselves as deeply sinful goes hand in hand with knowing Jesus as divinely patient. His perfect patience frees us like it did for Paul. And it frees us to, to own the depths of our corruption And to confess, I am the worst sinner I know. You see, supernatural patience extends mercy instead of wrath. Who is the enemy of your life that receives your wrath instead of your patience? You got names popping up right now, don't you? Look, I can see some of the smiles in the crowd. Is it a coworker who wronged you? Is it a supervisor who overlooks you? Is it a neighbor who called the cops on your kid's party? Is it your parent who was always on you about something? Is it your child who was always rebellious? Is it your spouse as you sit on the edge of divorce? Is it your frenemy that always looks to put you down? Or compete with you. See, today the Spirit's fruit of long suffering is displayed daily in God's choice to bear the countless, the frequent, the ugly sins and ugly sins that we all commit individually. The lives of his enemies are a direct attack against God. But it's God's mercy in being long-suffering that keeps him from executing the final judgment his enemies deserve. So why wait? Why is, why is God waiting when, it's, when in, the wrath is so deserving? And the scripture says, so that all should reach repentance and be saved. See, the delay of his judgment highlights his kindness and the common grace that is experienced by all, friend and enemy. 
And although we may desperately want Jesus to return and defeat evil once and for all, God has allowed these last days to continue so that we would all repent and be justified by faith. So if Jesus is perfect and loving patience is for the friend and the enemy, what does that mean for the Christian? How does that how does that affect the way we live our lives? Point number three, his patient through us. As we continue to live our lives in a broken world where sufferings and injustices are countless, we find ourselves looking for the practical, looking for the tips and tricks to sidestep grief at every opportunity. But history has proven some things are inevitable. There are some things you can't miss. But the scripture also says that all things work together for, for the good of those who love God. Amen. So we look to James to see how the supernatural fruit of patience is displayed. How our faith in Jesus and the thankfulness of our salvation compels us to live a life of worship. Not just on Sunday mornings, not just during a weekday connect or any other church-sponsored events, but in the crucible of our daily lives. Now, although James was speaking to the Jewish Christians of his day, the principles we can pull are still relevant for us. See, just like James's time, there were the rich, there were the poor, there were those who were being oppressed, and there were those who were doing the oppressing, similar to today. And in this portion of scripture that we go to, he just finishes rebuking the rich for their ways, but then he directs his attention to the poor who are enduring undeserved suffering at that time. So in James chapter 5, verses 7 through 9, it reads, Therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You must also be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. Brothers and sisters, do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. <clears throat> in order to grow the fruit of patience in the midst of a very messy life, the text says we must do three things. Verse 9, do not complain. <laughs> Verse 8, strengthen your hearts. And number 3, Verse 7, be patient. All right, point one, do not complain. Complaining is the physical form of impatience. Complaining is making a harsh judgment. Complaining is expressing resentment. Complaining is committing sins of the tongue. See, complaining is the evidence that there is a lack of trust in God. 
Complaining is the low voice telling yourself that you can do a better than God. Let's be honest. There are times when it appears that injustices and sufferings have no end in sight. And we feel that strong urge to react, to resist, to retaliate, or even reciprocate sin. But James cautions us not to be our, our own judges and to wait for Jesus. It's okay to call out injustices. It's okay to stand up for the oppressed. But not at the expense of losing our witness or looking like the violence that we're trying to stand up against. See, patience helps you avoid being wrong in character while being right in conviction. So what should we do instead of complaining? Number two, we should strengthen our hearts. James remind us the Lord's return is near. And he encourages not to waver in our faith. That we would be courageous. That we would stand strong. That we would continue to patiently endure as you faithfully anticipate Jesus' return to restore all things. As we try to fix them in our lives today. We can't control the timing of Jesus' return, but we can control how we respond to the waiting. So how do we strengthen our hearts? I haven't told you yet. And you're probably thinking, well, what do I do? You know, what do I do? By continuously rooting ourselves in the promises of God. And there's more. By these three things, though, because I still haven't given anything practical yet. Number one, read in the word. You don't know the promises of God unless you read the promises of God. Number two, praying through the word. And lastly, number three, meditating on the word. See, patience is the battleground of doubt versus faith. James is telling us to fight for your heart instead of letting it chase every single emotion that comes to your mind. And while you stop complaining, and while, and while you strengthen your hearts, you must be patient. And now this patience that James is talking about isn't a patience that sits passively, idle, and does nothing. James says to see how the farmer waits for the fruit and is patient for the rains. So as the farmer expectantly waits, so should we. See, the farmer knows that there are unseen things happening below the soil. And as he waits, he waits for the, the sprouting, the breakthrough of the soil that he knows is coming. The patience is rooted in faith of what Jesus accomplished on the cross and the promised hope of his future return. See, we live the lives of hope of the promised things to come. And this isn't a foolish hope. We expect it. We reject the temptation to enforce our will for today's desires and gain. 
See, we fix our eyes on the glory to come. We lay down our timetable and trust in his timing for all things. So as we, as we come to a close, I wanted to end it with this. There's something that we always say in our Sunday morning hospitality team huddles, and it's this. We always say to each other, today let us be the hands and feet of Jesus to everyone that walks through that door. Let us be the ones that reflect the love, grace, and mercy that was first shown to us so that they might know his patient love too. See, Jesus' love for the friend and enemy alike was displayed on the cross. Paying the full penalty of the sin, although he was sinless, so that you and I can be reconciled to God. So when I think about the mercy and patience that he showed me when I was an enemy like Paul, deserving the full wrath of God, I give him praise for the forgiveness he extended me. And when I think about how he continues to be patient with me as a friend, and as I continue to let him down like Peter, I repent and I give him praise for the forgiveness he continues to extend today. So as we worship together one last time, would you examine yourself? Sincerely examine yourself. And would you let patience serve as the warning sign of your life? Do you display the supernatural patience that is only available through a relationship with Jesus? And it's only something that can be created by the Holy Spirit? Or is the desire of wanting it right now causing you to be your own God? Let the reality of God's loving patience towards you bring you to repentance and back into the relationship with the lover of your soul.